Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got the marketing revolution in politics. What recent U.S. presidential campaigns can teach us about effective marketing? And I've got Bruce Newman with me today. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show. Sure, Bob. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that the book is not all about politics. It's actually, it's all about marketing, uh, data, and those type of stuff. But I wanted to ask you, why did you think that politics or the marketing revolution in politics should be the title of the book? Well, uh, what I realized after the two uh, successful Obama campaigns in 2008 and 2012 is that there was a paradigm shift that took place in politics. And what we had been doing in the field of political marketing for close to 40 years, which was to take the concepts of marketing and technology and applying it to politics, I realized that it was reversed with these two campaigns. And that the Obama model, which is what I refer to in the book, uh, created a new strategic blueprint for businesses and it gave them an insight into the use of big data, customer analytics, micro-targeting, social media, uh, that was used in a way that I would say most businesses uh, in both the profit and non-profit sectors had not used before as successfully as he used them in those two campaigns. You know, I want to ask you, you know, you're saying profit or non-profit. Do you think a political campaign is a different category altogether? It is. In fact, uh, I set up in the book what I refer to as a strategic triad, and the strategic triad represents three sectors, uh, the political, the profit, and the nonprofit. And I juxtapose uh, the three against one another, and as I speak about the seven marketing lessons in the book, I talk about the use of these technologies and the best practices that take place in each of these sectors and how over the years uh, each one has borrowed from the other. So yes, politi- the political sector is different than the profit or nonprofit uh, in some key ways. First of all, uh, there is a, a, a sense of crisis management in the political sector that we don't find in either of the other two sectors. You know, you could have, for example, in the profit sector, uh, a BP having a crisis or a carnival cruise or, or in, a non- in the nonprofit sector, uh, you could have a company that, that's dealing with some kind of crisis. But in politics, the crisis begins the day a campaign starts. And that crisis is the result of a 24-7 oversight by the media that we don't find in the other two sectors. In the political sector, we find the situation where these political organizations uh, that effectively are branded by the politicians who are running are being attacked, massaged, maligned, promoted on a minute-to-minute, day-to-day basis in a way that no other company in either of those two sectors, either the profit or non-profit sector, has to deal with a lack of consistency of brand message. 
you know, that, that's a fantastic insight because a lot of times when you're trying to develop theories and, and techniques and practices, you know, you're doing it in companies that are moving slow and specifically, you know, with crisis, there's not that many crises happening. So you can't test something and get immediate results. At least in the political arena, you have the opportunity to test something and go on and on and on. So it evolves and the strategy evolves incredibly rapidly within a political campaign compared to other stuff. That's right. And if you go back to the, uh, the, the first campaign that really understood the use of this, uh, this mentality, uh, it was, it was uh, Obama uh, in 1992. Uh, it, not Obama. It was, uh, it was Clinton in 1992. Uh, the war room that the Clinton organization developed in 92. Uh, was making use of the most advanced technologies at that point in time, which was what? It was the fax machine, it was telephone, it was an immediate response to any attack that was made uh, in any form uh, of, of the media. And of course, this is the result, uh, was the result of the 1988 uh, uh, Bush Dukakis campaign, where Bush H attacked Dukakis and he didn't fight back. So some of the people uh, that were in that 88 campaign came into Clinton's campaign, and they declared that we're going to have this war room, and we're going to have an immediate response to any attack. Well, fast forward to the 2016 campaign, and it's very interesting that within not a matter of, of hours, within a, a matter of seconds, you see Donald Trump tweeting and responding to any comment, any attack made on him, uh, in a way that we haven't seen in any sector for for any company in the past. Well, definitely, it's it's escalated as far as uh, the stakes, and I think way more voters um, are conscious of social media compared to five or ten years ago, where social media was it was still in its infancy. There was a lot of people that were uh, first time users or, or uh, people that were. Uh, getting into it before anybody else. But now we're kind of in bell curve territory where more and more and more of the population is, is conscious of Twitter. Uh, but also things like Facebook have become incredibly powerful as uh, platforms for the regular person to, to basically spout whatever they want. So I wanted to ask you, do you think uh, today is is it's almost critical that you look at the social media platform as the most important part of your campaign compared to all the traditional um, other ways of reaching out to uh, your population. Well, no, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the most important, Bob. I, I know, first of all, if we're talking about a marketing campaign, one of the components in a marketing campaign is the promotional uh, outlets that a, a organization uses. So uh, certainly from a marketing standpoint, I think there's far more important marketing uh, aspects of a campaign that supersede the role of social media, like having a message that resonates with uh, your audience, responding to the needs and wants of your audience, having a brand identity that consistently sends across the message. But certainly from a promotional standpoint, uh, television still matters. It's not that social media has eclipsed uh, the the role of print and and uh, visual medias, but certainly it has gotten to a point now where a political campaign is able to run their efforts much more cost effectively if they know how to use social media, and especially if you have as a as a customer uh, focus young people in particular like Bernie Sanders does. 
you better be very active with your social media campaign, as he has been. You know, he's been very actively using Snapchat uh, to communicate with these young people, and he's able to get a message across to them in the form of a commercial if they click on a filter when they get the uh, when they engage in Snapchat with him. So uh, it depends on the candidate, depends on the audience. I don't see Hillary Clinton using social media to the same extent that Bernie Sanders is. And of course, uh, we could talk about the use of social media. Uh, and and this kind of technology uh, as it plays out in every one of the campaigns today in the 2016 race. Well, yeah, I think it's playing out everywhere and and, uh, in business uh, for profit for sure. Do you think that not-for-profits just aren't up to speed as far as this type of strategy? I, I don't, and I spend a lot of time in the book, Bob, on the important lessons that nonprofits can learn from the fundraising tools that were used by the Obama campaign, which I refer to as the Obama model in the book, uh, they can learn a lot about the effective use of social media uh, to raise funds. And certainly we live in an era now where uh, we have candidates like Obama did, and we see the candidates today doing raising hundreds of millions of dollars uh, vis-a-vis social media. So nonprofits are are really struggling to figure out the important lesson uh, that's reported in the book, and that is that they really have to view themselves as a startup organization, uh, the same way that the uh, the Obama campaigns and each of the political campaigns today are. They're startup organizations. As a startup organization, uh, you have to be very careful with your dollars that are spent. And uh, there are success stories of nonprofits using social media. There's a, uh, a nonprofit in Milwaukee that was very effective at using social media to get a message across to, to dads and very low-income families that uh, agree to share their message on Facebook with a nonprofit, and they then spread that throughout the community in Milwaukee very effectively. Uh, but but there's still many lessons they have to learn from what uh, politicians are doing. Uh, in their effective use of raising funds. There are, for example, the stories of the Obama campaign in 2012 where they test-marketed exactly what to put in the subject line before they sent out a request for funds. They might have test-marketed that message out to to 100,000 different people. And based on the response to that test marketing, they figured out exactly which words to put into the subject line. My guess is we don't see nonprofits doing that today. Hmm. You know, I don't see a lot of businesses doing that today as well. You know, you're going in there and everything's rush, rush, rush. Decisions are taking too long to make. And then when it's finally time to roll out the campaign, it's it's pushed forward and people are saying, well, you know, we should be doing some A-B testing here, guys, just to make sure it's perfect. And once you've done three or four, then it's, okay, that's enough. Let's, that's, let's just launch it. And uh, you, you have to be able to step back and say, no, this isn't, we're not getting a good response. What's the point of putting something out if we're not putting out uh, something that's going to resonate with our demographic. And, and also, the question arises, so how often can I repeat the request? Now, this is where there's a divergence, I would say, between the political sector and the profit and especially nonprofit sector. One of the most amazing conclusions that the Obama people came to after the 2012 election is that when they repeatedly sent out requests for funds, 
they were shocked that people weren't irritated by those multiple requests because there is this emotional connection that we have in the political marketplace. Certainly, there, the emotional connection is important in every market, but I would say second to the political sector is the nonprofit sector, where people are going to be connected to your organization because they emotionally feel for and care about the cause that that organization is seeking to deal with. So maybe there's the possibility for a nonprofit to to be a little more aggressive in seeking funds, and I would say perhaps less likelihood of repeated messages on the profit side to get the same kind of reaction from their customers. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, I've done a lot of work with nonprofits, and um, one of the biggest hurdles that I had was getting them to understand that they were kind of in a business, and they should run it like a business and, and try to be, you know, utilize their, their funding uh, as effectively as possible, but also try to raise their money in, in a much more uh, commercial way. And they shied away from that. They said, no, no, what we should do is just ask for favors. And after a while, people get tired of being asked for favors. And we want to basically approach it in, in the way that we, when they received an invitation or they were asked to go to an event, it started with the, with the invitation where it was like, wow, this is kind of cool. I've never experienced anything like that. And then follow it through through the whole experience. But by the time they're there at the silent auction or at the auction part where the, where the money is for the organization, they're so enthused that they want to give back more than if there's, oh, we got to go to another of these charitable events, ho-hum, uh, not really interested in that. Yeah, I I think this is one of the areas where the book has uh, much relevance uh, and uh, an instructive uh, orientation uh, because nonprofit organizations probably come closest to the political sector than compared to the profit sector uh, because you're you're really talking about an organization that's not in uh, they're not in a business to make a profit. They're they're in a they're in a uh, business pursuit that seeks to affect some cause, if you will. One could certainly argue that what's happening today in the 2016 race, especially with respect to Trump and to Sanders, is that they're responding to a movement, a movement in the country, a movement uh, that reflects this great anger that we keep hearing the media speak about, that we see with our own eyes. Uh, when it comes to people trying to get jobs and get their feet back on the ground after the uh, 2008 uh, uh, economic crisis that we went through. And it really, uh, it really suggests that there is a connection between the political and nonprofit uh, sectors because they, they both represent, in effect, the, uh, the attempt to create this movement, right? Any nonprofit that cares enough about what they're doing is trying to share that caring, that emotional uh, uh, connection and commitment they have with people out there uh, who, who, don't, who don't have to necessarily uh, commit to the same cause, right? I mean, voters, you don't, as a voter in this country, it's not the same in other countries, right? In North Korea, 100% of the people vote. That's not a good sign. You don't have to vote in this country, but there's this effort to create a sense of obligation to get you to vote and to get you to vote for a particular candidate. In the same way a nonprofit is seeking to get 
a commitment from people to care enough about something that they give money and their time uh, and their resources to one nonprofit versus another, which brings up a very important point that also relates and is a parallel between the political and nonprofit, and that's the narrative. What's the narrative? of your organization what's the storyline do you have a do you have a storyline that stands out as unique i i could take for example a, a company that straddles the profit in non-profit sectors that's tom shoes it, with tom shoes if you buy a pair of shoes from tom's they donate a pair of shoes to uh, someone who can't afford to buy them themselves so it's a it's a very interesting parallel between quite frankly all three sectors and that comes out in the book quite a bit now I want to dig into the book a little bit because it, you know, like like a lot of books, you you have your content section, but it's a very minimalist content, and it really shows that each chapter is focusing on a specific topic. So I wanted to ask you, uh, this is almost like a three part question: If you're in business, and if you're in C-suite, and uh, if you're in politics, which chapter, which lesson do you think fits that particular? Um, target group the best and and I know that it, it works on all three but if you know business people don't have a ton of time so if they got the book they're at the bookstore they, they flip open where should a, a, a business person like C-suite or upper management go to read you know just one of the lessons to have uh, an inkling of, of the value they're getting out of the book well well certainly if you're if you're a, uh, a for-profit business operation uh, I, I think uh, the uh, the chapter on developing a unique brand uh, is of the utmost importance because uh, all companies, all for-profit companies, must be able to compete uh, effectively in the marketplace. And in order to do it, they have to have some competitive edge that makes their brand stand out as different from from other brands. And and the message in that chapter, back to this point I was just making, is that there, there has to be a narrative that makes your brand stand out as unique and different. And I, I think for higher level executives that want to succeed in their markets, it would be, uh, it would be uh, probably uh, very, very useful for them to jump right to that chapter, as opposed to uh, any political organization uh, would go certainly to the chapter uh, that deals with the lessons uh, in dealing with crisis management. Uh, every political organization is in a constant state of crisis mode. There is no other market uh, in, in any sector that has the same level of oversight as you have in politics. And one has to be nimble as we watch, for example, the 2016 race unfold, especially as it moves towards the Republican convention in July. As I read the tea leaves today, there's a good shot uh, and a good chance that uh, there's going to be a contested uh, a brokered convention. And how these political organizations and these candidates and their campaigns respond and deal with a, a three-day event that effectively is super crisis mode would be very interesting for them. And, and certainly when it comes to a nonprofit, I think the chapter and the lesson on uh, building a relationship with your customers is most important. Uh, certainly the relationship building is important uh, for any organization, but especially for a nonprofit. If I can't build a relationship with you as a person who cares about the cause, 
that I seek to deal with as a nonprofit, it means that you might be a one-time customer only. And, and, and the customer, by definition, on the nonprofit side, is someone who's willing to donate their time, their money, their resources, their connections, their network. In order for a nonprofit to survive, they can't afford to have a one-time interaction with a client uh, with a person who cares about what they're doing, they need to have a lot of repeat, repeat business with them. And I say it's most important for the nonprofit because they struggle the most when it comes to having money to run their organization. So they, they have to have solid relationships. Mm. Well, you know, it always goes back to, you know, um, looking at your target demographic, not as a target demographic any, but more of as a community. And you might have multiple communities, uh, whereas you'd have multiple uh, demographics. And you've got to be telling them the, the story that's going to resonate with them. And you've got to be you know, messaging them consistently in the way that they need to be messaging and, and the right platform. Do you think that uh, organizations are struggling because there's so much diversity in the uh, types of messaging tools that are out now, uh, and then that you got kind of a, like a disconnect happening with uh, older demographics or older communities and uh, young people. Yes, and I, again, I speak about this in the book. It's an integrated marketing uh, effort that we're talking about here, where you take all of your different promotional tools at your fingertips, be it TV, radio, uh, print, social media, they need to be integrated in a way that leverages the strength of each of those mediums with each of the different target audiences. You know, for example, using social media with younger people, using, uh, using television with an older segment. And this is, the, uh, this is one of the big messages in the book and, and the contribution of the book, that in the political sphere, you have a hugely diverse number of different customer segments out there in a way that you you never see it for any other organization on the profit or nonprofit side and that's why the uh, the book which is a case study of of, of marketing uh, uh, in the political sphere has so much uh, for companies and the nonprofit and profit to learn from because they don't have the same number of diverse segments as you have on the political side so so if we take the current campaign as an example, uh, every organization has to have a, an overlay, an a, a underlying theme, if you will, that ties together all the different segments. So take take a Donald Trump. What's his underlying theme? I'm going to make America great again. Right. So once you have that underlying theme, that has to resonate with all the different segments out there. He's done that successfully. As, as, as a brander, as a, as, a, as a master brander, which is what he is. He's been able to take that one theme and tie segments together, regardless of age, regardless of ethnic background, regardless of race, religion, or anything else. So every organization, I think, has to understand that there has to be some major thematic message that connects all these different uh, segments together. Hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the uh, on the political side. You know that there's basically they're selling uh, votes. I mean, come to me. I need you to vote for me. Now, what's the difference? Um, you know, with with, uh, with the comparison of, of political and and profit, where um, you know you, you get 
X amount of votes, but you also have X amount of people that don't actually vote. That, you know, like 40% of the population doesn't vote or, or whatever. Um, how would you compare those things uh, to a, a profit uh, organization where, um, I guess, votes would be considered sa actual closed sales and, and non-votes, people that didn't even vote? Where, where, would that category, where would that category sit? Well, there, there are two uh, chapters of the book. Uh, one refers to using research strategically, and the other one is to integrate research methods that comes into play here. Uh, and what campaign organizations have to do uh, is recognize uh, the very point that you're making, Bob, and it's a good one, that not everyone's going to be voting out there. So the question is, how can we go about figuring out who to target our appeals to to make sure that our marketing and our advertising dollars are spent effectively? Because on, on the, on the for-profit side, uh, usually uh, you have a customer seeking information from a, a corporation. If I'm in the, and I talk about this in the book as an example, if I'm in the market to buy a BMW, um, I, I'm going to be seeking information from BMW. I'm going to be going to the media. I'm going to be going into stores. I'm going to be going onto the Internet uh, to find out more about uh, uh, this organ this operation, this corporation, and what the different brand options are out there, models when it comes to cars. On the other side of the fence, the political operation uh, is more interested in getting information about you, the voter, trying to figure out who you are. And again, back to your key point is, uh, are you going to be voting? So a lot more money has to be spent on the political side to figure out who it is that you have to target uh, than on the for-profit side. And, and the for-profit organization has the benefit of the customer seeking information from them instead of the uh, political operation seeking information from, uh, from the voter or the citizen. Mm. Well, you know, with that, you know, case in point, when you, if you're looking at this book and if you're in a startup business or in a business that's uh, evolving or has done a, a pivot recently, this is probably the best way to be looking at your marketing as uh, a political campaign because you're kind of like re reaffirming the brand or introducing the brand and the values around that brand um, into a demographic that has no idea who the heck you are, just like what happens in the political arena. It is. It is exactly what happens, Bob. You know, some refer to this as the movie model, right? You make a movie, you bring together the actors, actresses, the staff. Uh, they make the movie and they disperse. Same thing happens on the political side, uh, where each of these uh, candidates running now in 2016 has brought together a group of experts that they hope will help them to, to win the nomination and ultimately uh, the election. So uh, effectively, the political, the political organization uh, is in the business of getting the best and the brightest to work with them. I talk in the book, uh, when I make reference to the Obama model, about the fact that effectively as a startup organization, especially in 2012, they brought people around the table uh, who represented different departments in the organization, whether it was polling, advertising, consulting, strategy, management. They sat around a table. They worked together. 
We don't have that in corporations today. We have corporations that have silos of people in different departments. And it creates a stale environment, I would say, back to the very point uh, and good point that you made. And that is there's something refreshing about bringing people together around the same table that don't normally talk to one another. But was what was a, a, uh, a uh, strategic mandate uh, in the Obama campaign was that every decision that was made in every facet of the campaign had to be measurable and had to be based on data. And it was from this initiative that they created a 1,000-variable statistical model that became the foundation for the dashboard. They created a dashboard, and every individual in Obama 2012 campaign had access to that dashboard. So regardless of whatever activity they were working in, whether it was changing ads on their website in real on their website in real time as someone was navigating through it, every person had access to this gold mine, this database that existed for them. And that's what that's what corporations uh, and nonprofits have to start doing on a regular basis. There has to be a paradigm shift, I think, in the whole business model uh, in this country. Hmm. Um, I wanted to, to, to step back a little bit. I used the word dashboard. Can you clarify that a little bit more for the listening audience? Are you talking about just a, a, a like a wiki, or is it a specific t- uh, piece of software, or is it just a Word document? Well, the, the, the dashboard effectively is based on software that, that puts the tool into the hands of a person online to be able to extract whatever information they need to make a decision instantaneously. You know, it's no different than the example of the MetLife organization that has a, uh, an insurance agent speaking to a client on the phone, turns on his or her computer, goes onto the Internet, and as they're speaking to them, they get a database of information on that client, and they realize where they have to start cross-selling that person based on what uh, they know about their history in terms of uh, uh, services that they've used in the past with the company. So a dashboard gives you access to data uh, instantaneously, allows you to bring it up, use it, and and uh, spit it out in a in a way that is easy for the person operating the dashboard to understand it. Mm. Yeah, and that, and that uh, you know, for, for people out there, you don't have to go out there and, and learn a, a brand new piece of software. You can do it using a wiki. You can use it uh, just making a database on an Excel spreadsheet, or you can get specific software that's designed for managing uh, client bases. Uh, it's it's up to you. But really, what the book's telling you is that you have to use this as a critical way of uh, making sure that that when you do uh, talk with clients and, and potential new clients, that uh, you're conscious of where all the things or, or assets that uh, they bring, which is knowledge base. And, and I think that is a great segue into big data. Um, today, big data, even though it's, it's massive, still, there's so many tools out there that are, that are so cost-effective compared to 15, 20 years ago, where it would cost hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to do great data mining. Um, do you think people aren't utilizing or uh, taking advantage of, of how cost-effective big data is these days? No, I don't think they are, and I think uh, there's two reasons for it. What, what, before I say that, I, I want to I make the point that in the book, uh, there's 20 pages of uh, citations and references 
And, and when I wrote the book, I meant it to be a, an encyclopedia for businesses to have at their fingertips so they could go to the sources of the people that developed all of these tools in the Obama campaigns, in other campaigns, and have access directly going online once they get that information to, to know where to go to be able to do what you're talking about doing. So, so essentially the, uh, yeah, the, 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 the ability to, to use all this information is there at their fingertips. Uh, yeah, and you know what? It, it's, uh, and he's talking about at the very, very end of the book, uh, notes, uh, and, and it, it's just amazing, actually, because it's des- the book is designed in a way that if you have any specific reference, he's almost got it covered uh, with, with an amazing index, which is pretty in-depth. But, yeah, the notes, it's pages and pages of references, people. So the book itself, just for that back section of, of probably, you know, phew, I would say you know, a tenth of the book um, has incredible, incredible research value. So definitely check that out. Um, so getting back to big data, do you think uh, people cringe or, or, or aren't into big data because it's just too hard to interpret? Like, oh, here's a bunch of pie charts. Do something with it. Right, right. You're, you're right. The, to get back to your, your question that, that you raised, uh, I, I think there's a confusion on the part of a lot of people about exactly what, what is big data. And uh, I try to make the case and explain it in uh, simple terms, and, and that is the notion that uh, the big data simply takes silos of information uh, in a way that the Obama uh, model incorporated that during uh, their two campaigns where, where they went to the magazines, found out who read which magazine. They went to political records, found out who voted for whom in past elections, went, went to the cable companies and got information about which TV stations people watch at which points in time. And uh, they, they then integrated that, and that's what is referred to as customer analytics. That's where companies are weak. Uh, uh, on, especially on the for-profit side, there is a there is a difficulty for companies to understand what it is they have to do to access that information. But even uh, further further complicating the world for companies, uh, both for-profit and non-profit, is the ability to then take this information, transform it into something that's that's uh, easily understood and used by employees within the organization. And the book makes the case in a step-by-step method where it shows how this played out in the Obama campaigns. Uh, this, is, this is a big lesson for companies to learn, and that is to know exactly how to make the information user-friendly and how that varies from, uh, from industry to industry. You might need more complicated or less complicated information depending on the industry that you're operating within. So there, there are, there is a lot for, uh, organizations to learn when it comes to not just getting their hands on data. Every, every company, Bob, has, has oodles of information out there. They just don't know how to manage it and they don't know how to make the best use of it and they don't know how to integrate it into the organization. That's why the storyline on how the Obama campaign used the dashboard is a fascinating insight into how any organization can take big data, can mine it, and integrate it in a format that makes it usable and relevant 
to employees at all different levels in the organization. Well, yeah, and, and for for you know anybody's listening has tried to do big data. Those are the two biggies. It's not the big data; it's putting in a way that people can assimilate it and, and get the information from it and in an efficient way. I mean, there's no point having tons of data available and people are spending half the day trying to interpret what you're trying to get across. Right, so, yeah. Yeah. right. And, that, and then, and then the, the real bottom line is the, uh, uh, the ROI. What's your return on investment in this kind of activity? It's huge. It's huge. And it levels the playing field for that little small business person out there who has an idea, who can compete with the big corporations because they could start to target their appeals, their products, their services to individuals, what we refer to as a segment of one in the marketing world, by understanding how to use this technology. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the major advantages of being small and uh, being a small business is your ability to be nimble and uh, pivot multiple times, uh, you know, in a day, let alone a month. And uh, with large organizations, because they're so large, there's a lot of bureaucracies, there's a lot of rules and regulations, and people's hands are tied. And it blows my mind when I'm talking to, you know, uh, CEOs of, of small businesses and, and uh, young entrepreneurs that they don't get that this is a devastating advantage you have on larger organizations. And the larger organizations are terrified that you've got to figure this out. There's terror on both sides of the equation. <laughs> sure. And you know that the terror comes from ignorance because you know, one doesn't know what the other one is doing on the other side. And, uh, of course, the imperative for the small operation is just to stay afloat. Uh, besides the fact that they, they certainly have that ability to be nimble and flexible, whereas the larger corporation, well, they're solid financially. So, so you know, it's almost like a country getting a little bit too uh, complacent and relaxed about uh, how things are going when you become a rich, wealthy society. And uh, we could look across the uh, globe and see other countries that aren't as rich and wealthy as we are making more efficient use of their resources uh, so they could compete more effectively. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the big things in, in – um... In a, in a country or, or a large organization, when you are large, you kind of have this, well, you know, why should I work so hard? You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to get fired. We're doing great, blah, blah, blah. When you're in a small organization, you're part of the rah-rah team. It's much more dynamic. Everybody's like rolling up their sleeves, like, how can we work harder so I have a future? That's right. And I think that is the, the source of energy in any, any political organization because it is a startup, uh, they do they do have the uh, the tenets of a nonprofit. They have a cause that they all care about. They're emotionally tied into it. Uh, they're willing to do what they have to do regardless of what they're being rewarded for, whether it's uh, in any extrinsic uh, manner, be it uh, money that they're paid or. Uh, recognition for what they're doing. I think this is the secret, one of the secrets that comes out in the book, and that is that the intrinsic rewards of creating a movement, not just between organization and customer, but between employee and organization, plays out in a very interesting way on the political side. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think if you're a leader of an organization, you should uh, get that going between departments as well, because that's a, an amazing, amazing way to basically supercharge your organization. 
And, and that's the result, uh, as a rule, in my humble opinion, uh, it's the result of a charismatic leader within an organization. Uh, a person, whoever that is, that is able to, uh, to coalesce the essence of what the organization stands for and to get a buy-in from the people at every level below that person. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, actually, you know, uh, we've been talking a lot about these the, the marketing campaigns. Do you think there's a big difference between uh, utilizing the knowledge in this book for a B2B organization compared to a B2C organization? There's no difference. <laughs> there, there's that. I mean, it, in effect, a political organization is both a B2B and a B2C, right? Because because every political organization, uh, and that, that's the case study, this is a case study of marketing in the political marketplace with lessons for the profit and nonprofit organizations. Every political organization is operating uh, with other political organizations. I mean, you're bringing to mind the whole notion of competition right now. And let's look at the current 2016 campaign. Where else do you have a uh, marketplace where you have competing organizations in the form of a, a Cruz, a Rubio, and Trump, with Rubio and Cruz at the point in the campaign we're at now, beginning to talk about working together to not allow Trump to get enough votes to win uh, the nomination on the first round of voting to bring about the contested campaign. So you're talking about a lot of not just vertical but horizontal integration within the political organization that goes between organizations, between competing political organizations, between political and media organization, between lobbyists and super PACs and interest groups. These are all business organizations operating on a B2B level in the same way that the B2C, the organization to voter, uh, plays out. And, and this is, in effect, every, even a B2C organization, Bob, uh, has some element of a B2B in them as well, right? Because every every uh, manufacturer is having to deal with a wholesaler or a retailer. Well, these are all organizations too. Uh, and, and so you could even argue that the employees represent another organizational entity so that uh, when you try to work within the organization, uh, it, that's, that's B2B too. So I, I don't see any difference between the two, frankly. You know, and and uh, what I love about that argument is that you're looking at an organization in a fresh way. Nobody is looking at their organization saying, well, you know what, we, we've got another business here. It's called our client service company, and, and why aren't we interfacing with them and, and giving them core messages that will resonate with that culture compared to the R&D department, which has a totally different headspace. Nobody is communicating in organizations like that. I, I totally agree, Bob, and I really like the use of your word fresh. Because I think if there is one word that labels my book, it is fresh. It's a fresh, eye-opening look at how business should be operating that it isn't currently operating on now. It's a whole fresh way of thinking about, uh, the, as I refer to it, as the strategic blueprint in an organization. Hmm. Okay, everybody's been waiting for it, but I wanted to ask you my favorite question of every interview is, for you, what was your aha moment where uh, you, you, there was a nugget of knowledge you've known about for a long, long time, but when you put the book together, it crystallized and you went, wow, that's such a truism. It's a great question, Bob. It, it took place when I was struggling for over one year with my editor. Uh, <laughs> when, when this book was, was blind, peer-reviewed by multiple people, uh, in a way that I, I've never had a book reviewed before by any publishing house. 
and uh, and I and my editor kept pushing me in a direction, and I kept fighting back and fighting back, and so finally the aha moment happened when I had a critical conversation coming up with my editor, and in order to prep for the conversation, I decided to read through what I wrote <laughs> because uh, you know a book is a piece by piece puzzle, and I just never I was so wrapped up and under pressure to get it done. I just decided I'm going to sit down and read the book from front to end, and I read it, and all of a sudden there was that, aha, I see the way she's been pushing me in the direction she's been moving me in, and quite frankly, I give a lot of credit uh, to my editor, Jennifer, in pushing me in the direction that forced me to say, okay, let's take everything that we know about what goes on in the political world, and let's feed it back and make it, put it in a, a format that makes sense to both for-profit and non-profit organizations. Hmm. Well, you know, that, that in itself is a big lesson for, I think, any business person here. If you're a leader of an organization and you're not listening to people and you're not willing to sit back and say, you know, what am I actually telling people? What, am, what is the vision I'm giving people? And letting people give their feedback. So, you know, we love your vision, except it's slightly off base and this is where it's slightly off base. If you refuse that advice uh, and still keep pushing towards that agenda, eventually you're going to give yourself enough rope to hang yourself. That's right. And, uh, you know, we could see uh, case after case of companies that have gone that route and uh, they've gone out of business. So uh, certainly any organization wants to avoid uh, going out of business. Well, it's a tough thing to do as a leader, right? I mean, they're, they're, you've been hired to be a leader. You're supposed to be pushing people forward. You're supposed to be having a vision. Um, but, you know, you should always have some sort of trusted advisor um, in a political arena uh who is a political advisor uh, for a campaign? Well, I, I think we're watching this very point play out, uh, quite frankly, today and tomorrow uh, with the Trump uh, organization. I think, uh, and I'm from Chicago, so I was here. Uh, I didn't personally see the demonstrations, but I, I certainly felt it. Uh, I think he's at a turning point now. And uh, I think we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait and see how he responds to the election results. And uh, I think he's going to have to decide on whether or not uh, he begins to uh, reposition his whole his whole brand, his whole message, uh, his whole image, based on what happened in Chicago over this past weekend. Well, I think if anybody can do it and get away with it, he 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 definitely could. I, I would say in this campaign, it certainly, uh, there's no doubt that this is a person who totally understands how to uh, manipulate a message, work with uh, the media, and uh, say what has to be said in order to respond to the moment. But uh, that's the fascinating part of uh, politics and marketing. Uh, one doesn't know what's going to happen uh, the next moment. <laughs> That's for sure. Hey, before we go, I wanted to ask you, uh, for, for our listening audience, what's one thing that they can do today uh, to kind of use the philosophy we've been talking about uh, uh, in the interview, uh, obviously, other than, than, than buying your book? I would say they need to sit down. They need to get representatives from as many departments as they have sitting around the table and they need to lay out the unique narrative that they have as an organization. Identify what it is, what's special about this company, 
And of course, that bubbles up from within the company, and then it gets transmitted vis-a-vis media and uh, promotional outlets to uh, customers. Uh, They need to identify what that is. And then every company uh, exists in a city uh, of some kind. They need to start communicating that message to the uh, their local media folks, to the editors. Uh, every editor of every local newspaper would be interested in learning about the unique narrative of an organization. I say this is especially true for every uh, startup and little company, as well as every big corporation out there. Uh, sit down, figure out what your unique narrative is, the same way that Obama did in 2008 and 2012, and uh, determine what that is and begin to disseminate that message to uh, opinion leaders uh, around you. Nice. Um, where can people go? Do you uh, have a blog or uh, if they want to connect with you, do you, are you active on Twitter? I, I have a website, uh, www.politicalmarketing.com, uh, which is uh, getting more and more active. Uh, and uh, besides that, I would say the best place for people to go uh, is uh, go to Amazon.com and plug in Bruce I. Newman. You'll see uh, this latest book out of around 15 I've written pop up. Uh, and uh, feel free to email me at uh, bnewman at depol.edu. And I'd love to communicate with anyone who has an interest in talking about the book. That's awesome. We've been talking with Norman about his newest book, The Marketing Revolution in Politics. And man, it is a must read. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bob. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.